Welcome to Cabbages and Kings, a podcast for readers of science fiction and fantasy. I'm your host, Jonah Sutton Morse. Cecily Kane is a feminist science fiction fantasy book blogger with a particular interest in short fiction. As a few authors can attest, when she falls in love with a story, she moves mountains to make it visible and get people to read it. She blogs at manicpixiedreamworlds.wordpress.com and runs a short fiction column, Strange and Sublime. This episode, we have a wide-ranging discussion, starting with Cecily's interest in transformative literature, her early reading in science fiction and fantasy, and what she found on the bookshelves as she grew up. We also look at a number of short stories, Seven Commentaries on an Imperfect Land by Ruth Anna Emrys, Jennifer Brissett's A Song for You, which we'll be having a Twitter conversation about this weekend, along with Ted Chang's The Great Silence, and two more short stories translated from Chinese and published by Clark's World magazine. Links to all of these are in the show notes, along with a number of other recommendations. Let's start with what you mean by transformative literature. Transformative literature, and it's not a perfect term because mm-hmm. it encompasses some things that, that I'm not that into, but it's the best thing I've got. Um, mythic fiction is another word that I use a lot, but transformative literature is basically usually retellings of things, whether myth, folklore, fairy tales, even history, mm-hmm. things like red shirts, you know, which is not my particular cup of tea. But um, It's definitely retelling Star Trek. Right, exactly. It's retelling Star Trek, and I was never, I was just never into Star Trek and fiction. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, so the obvious thing I think of when you say transformative literature and retelling existing stories, I think of fan fiction. To me, like red shirts and fan fiction are closer together than, than the rest of transformative literature is, because you're talking about different kinds of stories. When you retell a myth, there's, there's a lot of truth in it. It is, is, it's not, <sighs> It's not a false construct. But on the other hand, at the same time, I'll mention when dudes write fan fiction, it is not called fan fiction. I'm just going to note that for the record. <laughs> that seems fair. <laughs> yep. So retellings, but it sounds like more retellings of myths, older stories, casting right. them in modern times. Is that a piece of it for you or do you care less about that? Oh, I, I really don't care when they're set. I mean, they're not always set in modern times. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they are, and sometimes they're set in futures. Sometimes they're even alternate points of view within the story, such as Ursula Le Guin's Lavinia, which is from the perspective of a character in the epic, the Aeneid, who never even, I think, had a speaking role. Yeah, I think she shows up but doesn't speak, and she's Aeneas's wife? Yes, yes. So let's also establish that the Aeneid had the wife of the titular character not getting a speaking role. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Which is not to say that there are not impressive and powerful women who get to speak a lot in the Aeneid, because uh, Dido does. But I think that there is an entire subgenre of feminist retellings of myths and fairy stories. Pretty much. You know, it does seem like a lot more women write these than men do, but I read so much of it, and I read so many women authors that that could just be perception bias. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think so. My way in was not at all through retellings. Like, it was much more the just secondary world. I mean, Shannara and David Edding. Right. And that's one of the things that I was talking about with the closed versus open system. Okay, closed and open. I feel like, to a certain extent, when you're talking about stories that are retold and retold and retold, 
they never end. And it feels like they are an open system in a way that most secondary world fantasy isn't. To the extent that you can create a binary like that in the first place, because I feel like Race of Kings is a more open system than, you know, generic medieval Europe pseudo fantasy text, whatever open you can imagine someone else revisiting it you can imagine you the reader revisiting it again or it just is revisited over and over and over again i mean think about how many different versions of cinderella are out there okay yeah and something like the iliad has been told over and over and over and over and over again for thousands of years it is an unending story whereas something like Lord of the Rings. To some extent, there's an argument that American epic fantasy is a retelling of Tolkien over and over and over again. (laughs) Right. That's when you get to the difference between transformative literature and derivative literature. Yes, we have a lot of rehashing of Tolkien over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. It's not as interesting as it would be if it were the Lord of the Rings from the point of view of Eowyn or something. I'd read that. Nobody's written that my knowledge. Yeah, I don't think that anyone has that specifically and explicitly played with Lord of the Rings. I mean, arguably something that's going on with Grimdark, and I have some real issues with the aesthetic as a whole, but is saying, hey, look, let's let's tell the same kinds of stories, but make it a little bit dirtier and darker and not quite as hopeful and turning out as well for these, these poor country hobbits. Right, and you know, it's interesting because... Well, it's, it's kind of terrible, actually, that what Grimdark chooses to tell, yes, some of that's real, but if we need to revisit Tolkien, we need to maybe make it less racist? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's not clear to me that the critiques of Tolkien that Grimdark is landing are necessarily the critiques, the critiques that I want to see landing. Exactly. Now we're going to talk about some of Cecily's early reading and the bookshelves she was finding books on and not finding books on. The Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller. I haven't read that one yet, but that's a framing of the Iliad through the eyes of Patroclus. Ah, interesting. There was The Wrinkle in Time and the Chronicles of Narnia. There was a lot of Christopher Pike. I remember that. And <laughs> that's about all that I can recall right now. The first fantasy novel that I remember reading as an adult. Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis. Okay. It's a retelling of Cupid and Psyche. Okay. And it's also it's also a Christian allegory. Well, yes. But it was just, it just blew me away at the time. I'm not sure how well it would hold up. I'm not sure how feminist adult me would feel about it. Because <laughs> feminist adult me feels in ways about C.S. Lewis that, mm-hmm. you know, that 19-year-old me was probably not perceptive enough to to see. But I remember I started that book at when I, right before I was ready to go to bed, and I did not go to sleep until I put it down. And then the second fantasy book I remember reading as an adult was it's The Secrets of Jen Shea by Alma Alexander. And it has an entirely ensemble cast of all-female characters. You know, there are a few dudes in it that show up and mostly fuck shit up. <laughs> but <laughs> that one blew me away, too. I think I was 21 when I read that, and it was the same way. I stayed up all night reading it. Mm-hmm. I had to go to bed, did not go to sleep until I put it down. Here, Cecily and I contrast our reactions to one of the modern fantasy mainstays, A Game of Thrones. You know, the, the opening to the whole thing, it's like, oh, dudes with swords. 
I remember the first time I read it, and it was, like, I was blown away. There was that opening scene with the White Walkers and the guys with the swords and running away. And I was like, yes, ancient prophecy, ancient magic, cold magic. There are wolves. This is going to be awesome. You you were not quite as excited about that as I was? No. I do, like, a dudes with swords book every once in a while. But if you're, like, inundated with mm-hmm. dudes with swords... That's your entire experience of the sci-fi fantasy section of the bookstore. Mm-hmm. Dudes with swords everywhere. It, it, it becomes alienating. You know, I can't speak for other people, but I do think that that's not necessarily uncommon. When I was a kid, I read a ton of young adult books, and most of them were science fiction and fantasy. Okay. But there were, like, girls in it. You know, there were girls. And then when you move to sort of the grown-up section, which I did pretty young, um, it was like... Those books weren't in the sci-fi fantasy section anymore. They were in other parts of the bookstore. So it's real confusing when that happens. The first fantasy novel that I remember reading as an adult is Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis. That book, for its time even, was not critically received. And yeah, you, you just don't hear about it. And it's striking because, I mean, that's one of the, the straight white dude titans. Mm-hmm. And the one book that he wrote that, that was my favorite, it's just barely even in the canon. And then the second was The Secrets of Jen Shea by Alma Alexander. And that book was marketed. And you can, you can tell if you, if you look at the covers, it's mm-hmm. marketed as historical fiction, even though it's an entirely secondary world fantasy. So why did that happen? Some women right now are talking about how fandom will not support women and publishing won't support women in this genre. So they're moving to young adult where they'll make more money, get more attention. And I think the same kind of forces happen to to books like maybe Lavinia and also The Secrets of Jin Shea and also Till We Have Faces. They're stories by and about women. And so in order to get them into women's hands, I think that often publishers use marketing trickery because so many women have been alienated from that section of the bookstore by the dudes with swords everywhere. I sort of forgot that I liked science fiction and fantasy for a long time, and I still read books all the time, but they were like misplaced. I've always been picking it up and reading it. I just didn't know what it was. I mean, there there have been other books, too. Um, Michael Cunningham's Specimen Days is a series of three novellas. One of them is sort of fantasy, speculative fiction. Maybe you could call it dark fantasy. One of them is an alien falling in love with a cyborg. And the middle one's actually an, a noir story. But they're all sort of retellings of Walt Whitman's Song of Myself. Gregory Maguire did several fairy tale retellings. And he also did... The Wizard of Oz. He wrote Wicked and Confessions of an Ugly Stepsister. I don't know if you've heard of Eudora Welty. I heard of, but not much more than that. Right. Well, Eudora Welty, she's a famous author from the same place I'm from, Jackson, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And um, she was really famous for short stories in particular, but she was famous for one novel, The Optimist Daughter. Well, hardly anybody knows that she wrote a total fantasy story like a, a novel, it might actually be technically a novella by today's standards, but um, in the ni- 1945, I think is when it was published, mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah, I read that in my American Lit class mm-hmm. and was like, wow, this is my, I love this book. Not realizing for several years, oh, that book was totally fantasy. And there, there are problems in that text. That, te- that text is problematic in some ways, but... You know, it was a fantasy story with you know, famous people from Mississippi's past showing up as characters mm-hmm. in fantasy, fantasy, fantasy. 
Seven Commentaries is also transformative literature, and yes. and it's about Narnia. It retells Narnia in a way that there are several different Narnias, and it's okay if your Narnia is not somebody else's Narnia, and it says something really powerful about religion and discord. I've read that story at least five times, mm-hmm. and every time I read it, I get something new out of it, and every time I read it, I cry a little. It is beautiful. Yeah, it really is. I read seven commentaries because I was trying to catch up on novelettes. Which is an imaginary form. It only exists in science fiction. It's all about uh, awards and in the old days, I guess, the table of contents would say novelette. And, you know, oh, you're a kid. You're spending your 15 cents on the pulp. And I say, oh, it's full of novelettes. That sounds great. So it was a, it was a sales and marketing technique? It's not a story. It's a novelette. Ooh. You know, I don't care what Mama Tao says. Novelettes might just be a made-up marketing category. But for people who like longer short stories, mm-hmm. I like Okay, so I was catching up on novelettes at the end of award season, and I was recommended Litany of Earth. Mm-hmm. And I read it, I was like, you know, I really liked it. I really liked the woman's writing, so, you know, I liked it enough that I immediately sought out what else she had written, and that's the first thing that I found. Mm-hmm. I downloaded it, and I read it the very next day, and I was like, oh my god, this is my favorite story of the year. Just about hands down. And have been talking about it ever since, obviously. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I love that story. Love it. It makes me think things and feel things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to the extent that you can't even separate those concepts. You know, human cognition just doesn't work like that. Seven commentaries can be redigested many times many. Yeah, every time I read it, I pick up something different. I mean, the world building is so intricate and lovely. You know, you have the golem librarians and the magical mint. I loved the ways that it explicitly and specifically embraces kind of bringing modern into the alternate world and that the golem librarians like using email. Right! Oh, that's so good. I didn't even think about that. When Judy's child gets sick, they're like, you need some kind of pattern and law and things. And she's like, well, I do math, so I'm going to do math. The digits of pi, the prime numbers, the Fibonacci sequence, like that part of this other world that overlaps with ours is is in fact that it's not static. Right. Unlike, say, Narnia. Right. That's a really good point. I haven't thought about that, especially in terms of transformative literature. Like That's really interesting. Right. Yeah, maybe that's why I like it so much. That story is just magical. Another novel that's transformative literature that I really like is um, Karen Lord's Redemption of Indigo. It's amazing. It's a retelling of a West African folktale, and a Nazi shows up, and I just really loved it. It's got a great narrative voice. Lord, she has this really sort of witty, sardonic narrative voice in a lot of her books. I so rarely notice narrative voice as I'm reading. Notable exception, 100,000 Kingdoms. Right. N.K. Jemisin is one of those authors. To me, with narrative voice, there are two different kinds of authors that I really like. One, they have sort of this author voice that you can spot from a mile away. Right. And the other, they have more of like a character narrative voice where it changes radically from story to story. And I feel like N.K. Jemisin's probably the latter. Yes. I think I would agree with that. Yeah, she, she's one of those authors for me that the narrative voice is just killer. And Yeah, it, it was really interesting to me rereading 100,000 Kingdoms recently. And I could finally see the ways that it was dealing with the genre. Because the first time around, I was just totally swept away by the narrator and her relationship to, to the gods. I think I feel like Malin Edwards 
is probably another one of those authors. Everything I've read of his has a very different voice and a very strong character voice from another given story. Mm-hmm. And he's one of those authors for me, too, where it's narrative voice, narrative voice, go to him. Mm-hmm. And then there are short fiction authors I like where the narrative voice is like, oh, I see you from all the way over here. And that's that would be Sunny Moraine, Wool Tawabi is another, where it's just reliably, uh, I just uh, I like pretty much everything they write that I can find. So it's similar-ish voices across the stories, but it's a strong voice that you really connect to. Right, it's, it's more of an author voice than a character voice. Now we're going to talk about Either by Zhang Ran and Tong Tong Summer by Jia Jia, both published in Clark's World as part of a project of translating Chinese short fiction. Kind of viewed from opposite ends because, I mean, they're both fairly optimistic stories. I would not have described Ether as a optimistic story. It ended up on a positive note in prison. Yes. What part of it is sticking in your head? Honestly, probably the scenes in the basement and the very end where, like you said, they're all in prison, but they're all together. Yeah. That is significant. <laughs> you know, they have not been split apart. That is part of the optimism. With Tong Tong Summer, first of all, there were just the incredible, complex, and very real relationships. And... I loved that, and it made me cry, and it was wonderful. <laughs> I think it was Renee that said that it made everybody gross sob into their computers. <laughs> so, yeah. That sounds about right. I think my favorite part of Tong Tong Summer, the, the part that sticks out most in my head, it, it, it was at least tied for my favorite science fiction story of last year with Mahisha and Time by Rachel K. Jones. Those mm-hmm. are my two favorites. My favorite moment that I can recall in that story is when Tong Tong is running around playing and climbing trees and shit. <laughs> and yep. her grandfather is all worried about her <laughs> and makes yep. her wear the little video thing so he can watch out for her to make sure she doesn't do anything too stupid. Because that's what kids do, right? Exactly. <laughs> they do stupid things. <laughs> and by the way, I was at a park yesterday and there was a kid who was there with his grandma and grandma was worried about him doing things that weren't safe that he pretty clearly felt confident about. And grandma was also worried about my kid doing things that she was very safe with because grandparents are like that and kids resent it. And yep, that was such <laughs> was an so amazing scene in Tong Tong Summer and I loved it. But go on. It's like, as my grandma would have said, like... Don't kill your full self, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's very... It just so many memories. That, that story just encapsulates the grandparent-grandchild relationship so much. Yes. And thank the lords that my grandparents didn't have this technology <laughs> when I was a kid. It would have made it so much less fun. Really, it's like up until the age of 25, it's like we're constantly daring the forces of death... <laughs> whatever to claim us (laughs) and i think that i don't know maybe parents have like something in their head that kind of turns that off out of necessity because otherwise they'll just slowly go insane (laughs) grandparents don't anymore anyway yeah that moment of tong tong summer just just looking back on it that, that sort of shifting of roles between kids not being helpless anymore and you know this grandfather becoming more and more helpless except that he has the aid of this technology. And that was just, it's such a such a beautiful vision of growing older. You know, the fact that 
He can watch his grandkid play so he doesn't have to worry about her killing her full self. These older men that have been, that were friends a long time ago, but kind of lost touch, are able to help each other. Losing some of their bodies or, or brains function does not mean that their skills become worthless. Right. There's so much there about the value of elders and the ways that they tend to get ridden out of society. And Tong Tong Summer, there's so many levels to it, and it's really, really, really good. really is. If you haven't read it before, you need to. Yep. Yep. <laughs> We're deep in our feels, dude. <laughs> well, and here's the thing. I'm so deep in my feels about Tong Tong Summer, and I can go on and on about Tong Tong Summer, and with either I'm like, yeah, so technology can be used to repress. They're, they're fighting the rear guard of a very losing battle, was the sense that I had at the end of it. But you had you had a more optimistic feeling than I did? I feel like if there were a sequel to this story, it would have... Somehow they would win. I don't know. <laughs> but that's what it felt like to me. I mean, definitely one of the possible sequels to that story is an uprising against the machine overlords. Wouldn't that be sort of the direction you'd have to go with that with that story? If you were trying to get optimistic and hopeful, or maybe getting far out on a farm somewhere? Right. And of course, kind of the way we envision it happening is probably limited by our perspectives, too. This is Chinese science fiction, so who knows? Like... I wish I could ask the author. (laughs) Definitely a different set of anxieties and assumptions. There was an interesting question in the Clerks World comments that was not answered, asking whether the translators had changed the context, because at one point they refer to things like the 33rd Amendment, and I think there might even be a First Amendment comment. That was not answered. I mean, I feel like there's definitely some human contact being made, and it it's kind of about getting back to human contact, literally and metaphorically, but I just found it a really sad and empty world. Because to me, it felt like dystopia is always such, well, it's sad bastard science fiction, really, most of the time, and, and this felt like it wasn't. Because, I mean, even in this horrible dystopic future, like, you still have the hope of human-to-human relationships. But yeah, that's how it felt. I mean, it kind of felt like the opposite of maybe this movement in Tong Tong Summer, where the ending is really sad, but at the same time, it's so hopeful. Yeah. Like, it's the future. People still die. You know, they still get old. I, I, do, I do feel like both of them are really about human connection. Yes. And, and about how technology impacts that. And with Tong Tong, the technology kind of is an enabler. And either the technology is inhibitive, but, you know, they sort of go back to this old technology of just human networks. And I love Tong Tong Summer, and I didn't really like either because the world behind it, I mean, talking about Tong Tong Summer being really complex and well-realized, either's world felt like dystopic and uninteresting, and the main character is literally this part-time bureaucrat. And that's kind of the point, but it felt really hollow to me. Until he finally makes the connection, and again, the human connection and the finger talking. Right. And I think that's part of the point, honestly, is that his life is supposed to feel boring and banal. And Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Like, this, this is a vision of total terribleness. <laughs> it, it is. It is. It, it is a vision of, really, a kind of pacified society. 
Right. In which everybody interesting is bored to death. You are going <laughs> to groan a little bit about this, but there's a thread in early sci-fi stories, like Golden Age sci-fi stories, about robots and robots taking over and humans kind of losing their spark of individualism, curiosity. It kind of varies from story to story, but the, te- the notion that technology is going to strip away some essential human element which also current anxiety. I feel like Hong Kong and either are intentionally the two sides of the same coin, the technology as enabling human connection and technology as inhibiting. For humans to even have discourse. Each episode closes with a memory of a significant book, the right book at the right time, an interesting find, or just something that stuck around. Well, you really like epic fantasy, so I guess I'll talk about something that's epic fantasy. <laughs> So, <laughs> <Fair> <laughs> because I I usually don't like a lot of those the tropes of epic fantasy just annoy the ever living piss out of me. Mm-hmm. So in a way that they don't in epics. I mean, my favorite epic fantasy book, to the extent that one can sort of treat epic fantasy as a category, is Nettie Akorafor's Who First Death. And one of the reasons I love it is because even those tropes that usually annoy me when it's a female character with those same tropes, but a clever spin on those tropes where it doesn't look exactly the same as it does when it's a dude. That's pretty powerful. You know, that's seeing yourself in the narrative when you've been excluded for so long. Mm-hmm. You know, and her sort of fellowship, uh, scare quotes, you know, it's based off of her childhood girlfriends. Mm-hmm. That, that's where it starts from. There are a few men in it too, but it starts with this sort of core group of childhood female friends. And that's a really powerful thing when you've sort of just become numb to all this dudes with swords stuff. It's pretty amazing finally seeing yourself in the narrative. So that was a, that was an experience for me very much like first finding the secrets of Jin Shay, which is secondary world, but not epic fantasy. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, wow, you know, Girls doing this stuff. This is interesting. This is fun. Thanks for listening to Cabbages and Kings. Please let me know what you think of the show. On the website, cabbagesandkings.audio, there's a feedback form and also a page if you'd like to be on the show. Or just go ahead and email contact at cabbagesandkings.audio. I'm on Twitter at jsuttonmorse. The show is on Twitter at kingcabbagecast. Let me know what you enjoyed, what books you're reaching for now, what I can do to make the show better. The website also has an occasional blog, my running tweets on books I'm reading, and importantly, a link to the RSS feed for this show, which you can also find on iTunes and wherever fine podcasts are aggregated. Until next time, enjoy your reading.